Before we close our final service tonight, I don't remember being as well treated as I have been here. It's just been a joy since the first time I walked from the parking lot into the building. A very friendly church, very enthusiastic. There's a lot of zeal to learn the Bible, and that's encouraging to a preacher. It's been a treat. This week has gone by really fast for me. It reminds me of the story of the couple who celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary and their children put together a party for them. All their friends came, church friends came, and uh, they, they really enjoyed it. They re- were reacquainted with a lot of people, relived a lot of memories, had some good food, a lot of gifts, and it was about to be over, and the gentleman who was celebrating felt like he needed to express appreciation, and so he, um, he was at the head table with his wife, of course, and uh, he tapped on his glass, and it got really quiet in there. And he wasn't much of a speech maker, so it made him a little more nervous. But he uh, managed to get some words out. And, he, and then he said, um, speaking to his wife, Honey, I just want to say in front of everybody that I love you. And through the years, I have found you to be tried and true. But she didn't hear as well as she had at one time. And she said, Huh? He said a little louder. Honey, I love you. And... I found you to be tried and true. And she said, Huh, I'm tired of you too. (laughs) Well, we will part ways in the morning early, Lord willing, but it will not be because I'm tired of you. It has been a treat. We've looked at the big picture of the Bible, the 50,000 feet view. We covered the Old Testament, the three dispensations of Bible history. We've we've covered the 12 New Testament verses that are a summary of all of it. But tonight's lesson is different. Tonight's lesson is not so much intellectual, so factual as it is action-based. You know, it's one thing to know the Bible, to be able to quote scriptures, to be able to give outlines, to understand the characters. But a person could know all that and still die and be lost. Because if we do not take the Bible to heart, you know, it's one thing to go through the Bible, but it's another thing to let the Bible go through us. And we need to let the Bible go through us, through our minds, to guide our hands, our lips, our feet, because that's the purpose of the Bible. It's not an academic book. It's not just a discipline that you're supposed to memorize and be able to quote from at the right time. That's part of it. But it's really about lifestyle. It's really about relationship. It's really about the mind of God being revealed to people that we might love Him, respect Him, understand Him, and, and go and live with Him. And so tonight we're going to look at that aspect of it, trying to tie it all together with, okay, so we know the Bible, but what's next? Well, let's begin here in 2 Timothy 3. And of course, this is one of the 100 chapters that Paul wrote, but it's his next to last chapter. He's an old man, prisoner, probably a maritime prison there in in Rome, just just off the forum. And they, uh, you, you could visit possibly where Paul was imprisoned if you made a trip to Rome, some of those subterranean cells. We don't know for sure, but it's likely that's where he was. It was cold and damp in there, and he asked his friend to bring him his cloak so he could wrap up. And he asked him to bring his books, his parchments. 
He's an old man, but he hasn't learned everything about the scriptures yet. He wants to know more. And he's thinking about those lonely hours in that prison. Yes, it's cold, but he wants something to read. And what better to read than the scriptures? And that's 2 Timothy 4.13. But here in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, he talks to this young man who has um, been a, a mentor e to him. He's trained him, spent a lot of time with him. They have a great relationship, his own son in the faith. And this will be his final correspondence with him. And you know, the final words, final letter has a lot of significance and it would be treasured and cherished and read again and again. And so he, he, he writes to him about the book he loves, the book we love, the Bible. And he, he knows that Timothy has a relationship with this book and has since he was a child. Verse 13, verse uh, 15 of chapter 3, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. That would be the Old Testament, of course, because he grew up before the New Testament was completed, which are able to make thee wise. Well, a lot of people are not wise, they're foolish, they make mistakes, they bring burdens and sadness into their lives that would have never been there if they had read the Bible if they had understood Scripture, if they had said, I'm going to walk the path that the Bible lights for me, because that's a path of wisdom. And they're able to make thee wise, Timothy, young man, young preacher, but not just wise for this world, not just to avoid pitfalls and dangers that young people, young men, and then middle-aged and older people make, but, but wise unto salvation. You know, it's a shame to go all the way through this life and miss the primary purpose of it, isn't it? This is a training ground for another world. The point is not about this world. It's not about how many toys and gadgets and collections you can have or how much money you can put in a bank or what kind of vehicle you can afford to drive or how many square feet are in the house that you live in. It's not about any of that. It's about preparation for that one great day that, uh, that stands in the future as the poet said, to which all of humanity goes, we're all on the way to that day. And when we will stand before our maker and be judged and told either to come or to depart. And on that day, nobody's going to ask, what job did you have? What education did you have? How much money did you spend? How, how many votes did you get? None of that's going to matter. The only thing that's going to matter is the judgment of one person, Jesus Christ. And... You know, when I was in school, I, didn't, I did not like pop tests. <laughs> I guess no students like pop tests, right? You come in and maybe the teacher suspects you didn't read the assignment last night or you maybe the class is not really taking it seriously. And they, they may say, well, uh, he may say or she may say, well, take out a piece of paper and a pencil and put your name at the top and number one to 10 and then read off these questions. Oh, not prepared for this. Didn't know this was coming. no. If you're going to give me a test, tell me ahead of time. And my students, I like to tell them the questions ahead of time. I want them to do well, but I give them so many questions that they're going to learn a lot just learning the questions. And, and then when they get there, they'll, they'll be able to do pretty well on the test. That's what God did. It's not a pop test. 
He's given, giving us what it is He's going to judge us. John 12, 48. We can be saved. And that's the point from verse 15. But you continue through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now that's the most important person we're about to talk about, Jesus. And then he says in verse 16, a verse is probably familiar to most in here tonight. All Scripture, that will be Old Testament and New Testament. That would be all 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses. They all come from one source. That source is God, the Holy Spirit. Through 40 different writers, Old Testament, about 31 writers, eight New Testament writers, four apostles, four prophets in the New Testament. You have the man, the apostle born out of due season, who wrote 13, 14, if you count Hebrews books. So the most by number. And then you have the beloved physician, Luke, who wrote the most by volume, about 25% of the New Testament, 50 chapters. Then you have Peter, Matthew, you have James, and Jude. Well, those are the ones that the Holy Spirit chose, but 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says that holy men of God spake as they were moved, literally born along, carried along with the current, born along of the Holy Spirit. So the words that we have are not Peter's words. Well, they're his words, but the Holy Spirit chose them and put the, he put them down on the paper so that we have the words of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That literally God breathed. God breathed into man and He became a living soul. God breathed into the book and it became a living book. Hebrews 4, 13. This is the only book in the world that's alive. Luke 8, 11 says that it is a seed. What's a seed? Well, you plant it, there's life in it. When it comes up, it produces fruit. Well, that's like this book. You plant this book in the conducive, receptive soul of the human mind or heart, and it will grow. It will change. It will bear fruit because it's alive. All, all scriptures give me inspiration of God. Now, here are four ideas. It teaches us what is right, what is not right, how to get right, how to stay right. See these four ideas in this one verse. It says, All scriptures give me inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine. That's what's right. Doctrine means teaching. The Word of God is right. Now, it differs with the world, and when it differs with the opinions of our generation, it's not the Bible that's wrong, it's our generation that's wrong. The Bible is right, it tells us what is right. But it also tells us what is wrong. The next phrase says, for reproof. So that, that corrects us when our steps go astray. And then the third one, how to get right for correction. And how to stay right for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect. The word doesn't mean sinless, but it means mature. It means complete. May be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every or to all good works. Uh, Jude 1.3 says that <clears throat> we are furnished unto all things that pertain to life and godliness. Life has to do with getting up and going to work, staying married, bringing up good children, being a good neighbor. 
has to do with our lives in this world, being godly even in the midst of a crooked and a dark and crooked generation, Acts 2, 39 and 40. Godliness has to do with, I mean, uh, life and godliness. Godliness has to do with uh, what we're doing in here, you know, living for God out there, worshiping God faithfully as, as His people. Now, let's go to the, uh, uh, that's the introduction. So that, let's go to the book of uh, Matthew. And let's just pick up, we're going to go through four simple ideas. We're going to piggyback on what we saw last night because we, we're looking at the New Testament and the outline of the New Testament, four, one, 21, one, four biographies, one history, 21 letters, one book of prophecy. You remember that? And as we go through, we, we emphasized uh, those 12 verses. But now let's go back through and let's emphasize one product of the Bible from each section. One thing not to miss when you study the Bible. The first one is don't miss its chief person. Its chief person. He had no servants, but they called him master. He had no degrees, but they called him teacher. He had no medicines, but they called him healer. He had no armies, but kings feared him. He had no toys, but children loved him. He had no school, but disciples followed him. He committed no crimes, but he was arrested. He was an innocent man, but he was condemned. He was the son of God, but he was killed. But he's alive tonight. Jesus Christ is the greatest man who ever lived. Did you know that when he was born, the angels sang? Luke 2, 7 to 15. God spake at his baptism. Matthew 3, 17. And the sun refused to shine in his death. Mark 15, 25 to 34. His, his condemning judge said, I find no fault in him. His executioner said, surely this was a righteous man. He issued this challenge in the presence of his enemies. Which of you convinceth me of sin? John 8, 58. Maybe 48. It's in John 8. That's a great chapter. Read the whole thing. You'll find it. You know, I would not issue that challenge among people who love me. What can you point out that's wrong in my life? <laughs> well, that, they, they could start pretty early and go pretty long about that, couldn't they? With any of us. Jesus, in the presence of his enemies, said, okay, put your finger on it. What is it? You know what they did when they brought him into a court of law? Didn't have anything on him, of course. They had to suborn witnesses. That means they had to they had to bring in false witnesses who would perjure themselves under oath. And they said such things as, he said he was going to tear down the temple and build it again in three days. Really? That's why you arrested him? Uh, well, he, he violated the Sabbath day. What did he do? Well, he made uh, blind people to see. 
Really? And um, lame people to walk. And, uh, and that's why you're condemning him? There's never been anyone like Jesus. Acts 10.38. He went about doing good. I said Matthew. Really, you, you, could, you could turn to any page. But I thought that you might want to write on uh, the page before Matthew. I've done, if, if, you do, if you write in your Bible. Uh, I find it interesting to read the words of Jesus. If you have a red letter Bible, the red letters are no more important than the black letters. They're all equally important because they all come from the Holy Spirit. But it is helpful when you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and occasionally in other places like Acts 10 and 2 Corinthians 12, where there'll be red letters on the page, you know, just at a glance who the speaker is. Did you know there are uh, 3,920 3, verses when you add up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You read the conversations of Jesus. Let me give you the exact number. <clears throat> 1,865 of those verses are Jesus' words. That's 48%. And of those words in red in your Bible, 10% of them personal conversations as well as sermons are direct quotations from the Old Testament. 179 verses. You remember when the devil tempted him? Command these stones be made bread. Jesus said it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. Jump off of the pinnacle of the temple. It is written. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all this. It is written. You can only worship God. Him only shalt thou serve. You see, the word of God permeated his mind. And I hope that this time together, as brief as been, has lit a candle within our hearts that we want to know the word of God better. We want to understand it more. And I tell you, there's no royal road to it. You know, there's... a uh, Old preacher knew the Bible, quoted front and back, and uh, the young man said, "I wish I, I'd give, I'd give, I, I'd give anything. I'd give half my life to know the Bible like he does." And somebody said, "That's what it cost him." There's no royal road. It's put your face in the book, day after day, read it, learn it, love it. And really that last part's the key, isn't it? I read about uh, William McPherson who had dynamite go off in his hands. He lost his hands. He lost his eyes. He lost the feeling in part of his face. He was a construction worker, had not been particularly religious before that, but that experience, as you might imagine, caused him to really become interested in the Bible in Christianity. But he couldn't read it because he was blind. He couldn't use Braille with his artificial hands. He tried to read the Braille Bible with his lips, but he didn't have enough feeling to be able to decipher the, the letters. But he discovered that the moon type 
braille. He could decipher with his tongue. And although it caused his lips to bleed and his tongue to be cut, he read the entire Bible through four times with his tongue. And what is it? What, what was my reason for not reading the Bible? I read about, about a man in prison. He was in utter darkness at all times except when they turned on the hall light to bring the food down to the dungeon to feed him twice a day. And he was half starved as were the other prisoners. And the other prisoners, as soon as the food came, they took it and they ate it with gusto. and They just couldn't wait to get the plate. But he was different. And the guard became curious about it. And he said, he stopped one day and he said, all these other guys, they just, they just grabbed the food from me, but you seem half hardly interested in the food. And you sit there with that book as if you don't want to eat anything. Why is that? And that book was this book. And he had positioned himself in such, a place, in such a way so that when the door opened and the light from the hall shone into his cell for just that brief time that it took to put the plate in there, that he could read part of the Bible. And he said to the guard, he said, I can find my mouth in the dark, but I can't read my Bible in the dark. You say, preacher, why are you telling us this? Because part of preaching is motivation. Part of preaching is to reach out and grab someone by the lapels and say, uh, you need to listen to this. Not because of the, who the preacher is. It could be any preacher who's preacher of the gospel. But we really need to be awake to the fact that this book is important. And it may be far more important than I have esteemed it in the past. Study to show thyself approved unto God. That's King James. Some other translations have give diligence. And that's what the word means there. It's found 11 times in the New Testament. That's the only time it's ever translated study, 2 Timothy 2.15. And when you put the two ideas together, King James, American Standard, other versions, give diligence study would be the phrase. And that's what it takes. What I'm hoping is that as we go, as we leave tonight and we go back to our regular routines, that, that each of us, me included, say, you know, I'm going to spend a little more time, maybe a lot more time. I'm going to carve out some time. If I have to get, set my alarm to get up 15 or 30 minutes early, I have to give up part of my lunch break, I have to give up some of my TV or screen time, I'm going to be in the book. I'm going to know the book because it's the book that tells me about Jesus. Doesn't matter who you may know in this world, Jesus is the one you need to know from the next world. And He will welcome you at that gate, the other side of the judgment, and, and give you a place to live forever. Let's go to the book of Acts chapter 9. I want to see our second point. Don't miss 
the Bible's person, that's Jesus. Don't miss the Bible's purpose. That's salvation. You know, we saw that in 2 Timothy 3.15, unto salvation. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, when you include verse 17. Now, is the power of God. I mentioned that it's a book that's alive, it's a seed that can grow. It is a power that is destructive of sin. It's a hammer, it's a fire. Those are figures that are used in the Old Testament. But it's also life-giving. And you see the life-giving aspect of it in Acts 9. One thing that Jesus taught that was different than what the Pharisees taught, you know, he goes through, you have heard it hath been said, but I say unto you that, that formula over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 5, he, he says uh, that, we're to, that uh, you're to love your enemies and do good to them that despitefully use you. And, and then he demonstrates it. Jesus had no greater enemy than Saul of Tarsus. They were born about the same time. Their, path, their life paths had, had been divergent to this point. Saul of Tarsus went to the best schools, grew up in a, in a religious family, orthodox. He rose quickly. He was very zealous. When we, we see him on this, come on the scene here in Acts 7, they are uh, the enemies of the church are persecuting the church. And a man named Stephen, who in my estimation was a deacon, Acts 6, certainly was a leader in the church. And he was a powerful preacher too. And uh, he offended, Acts chapter 7 says sermon, the end of that sermon, the Jews were offended. Long story short, they laid their coats at a young man's feet whose name was Saul when they stoned Stephen. And Stephen died calling upon the name of the Lord. And then he led a persecution against the church, hailing, have you ever noticed this phrase, men and women into prison. I guess there were some little children that didn't have a mom and daddy because mom and daddy got arrested for being a Christian. Who, who would do such a thing? Saul. He, so the persecution got so bad that Christians, some of them, left their country. They went to Syria, the next country up. Uh, Damascus is capital of Syria. But he goes to the high priest in Jerusalem and obtains papers to go internationally to cross over the border and go into Damascus and arrest Jews who are Christians and bring them back down to Jerusalem where he can try them and imprison them and perhaps execute some of them. You see, that's how zealous he was. And he's on this journey to go do that. And the Lord lets him get close to, to Damascus. And there's a bright light shines around about him. He has traveling companions. They also are witnesses, at least to the sound and to the light, but not the words. But here in uh, verse 4, I'm in Acts 9, 4, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Those, those are red letters in my Bible. I guess they may be in yours if you have a red letter Bible. So there's the Lord speaking from heaven, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now here's Saul on earth, 
And um, this is quite a unique experience, right? <laughs> a bright light shining in the middle of the day, a voice from heaven. And then he asked the first of the two most important questions that any person could ever ask and every person should ask before they die. The first one, who art thou, Lord? Who, who do I have the privilege of talking with here? He knew he was talking to someone in another world, but who, who, who are you? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Oh, Jesus! Ugh. That's the name he hated more than any other name. It's the name he's trying to stamp out everywhere. Jesus? Oh. Well, then there's a flood of thoughts. Oh. If Jesus is in heaven and I've been persecuting his people. Second question. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Everybody ought to ask that question. Not feel, although there are feelings associated with Christianity. Not think, although it is an intellectual faith. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And so surely the Lord will correct him and say, I already did everything at Calvary. There's nothing for you to do now. What do you think you're going to try to save yourself? But that's not what the Lord says. The Lord says, go into the city and it will be told thee what thou must do. So he goes in the city. He prays for three days. Doesn't eat fast. Then the Lord sends the preacher to him. And the preacher is named Ananias. And I says, I want to go. Because he had heard that Saul was coming. You know, bad news travels fast too. So he, he no, this is some kind of trick, Lord. Uh, he came up here to arrest people. And I've been trying to, I'm figuring out how to stay away from that guy. And you want me to go talk to him? He's a chosen vessel unto me, the Lord said. So Ananias summons his courage and he goes. Now may I ask you this question? If you knew somebody was wanting to be baptized, would you wait three days to go see them? You know, of all the sinners that are baptized in the book of Acts, there's not a single sinner in there that ate, drank, or slept after they learned what to do to be saved before they did it. Why is that? Salvation is urgent. And we have no guarantee on life. Life's a vapor, it appears for a little while, vanishes away. I might live to be 100, but I might not live to be tomorrow. You know? So we should obey as soon as we know. And that's what you see in the book of Acts. Why did the Lord wait then? Well, I don't know for sure, but this is what I think. So you can, you can judge, you read your Bible and decide. But it seems to be like Saul of Tarsus had a lot of repenting to do. He had a lot of mind that needed to be changed. He had to unravel. His whole life had been going full tilt in the wrong direction. He believed in Judaism to the hilt. And he believed Christians were the enemy. And, that, and now he's thinking, well, if, that, if that's true, then 
uh-oh, I can't keep my job. And if that's true, then, oh no, what did I do to Stephen? And if that's true, then I, I need to preach Jesus. Well, you, didn't, you don't make all those decisions in 10 minutes. So the Lord gave him three days. And Nice comes and says, it's not in Acts 9, but this is the most recorded conversion in the Bible. Three chapters. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. Acts 9 is where it happened chronologically. Acts 22, 26 is when Paul related what happened to, in, in his defense in, in courts of law. And some details are given under the inspiration of the Spirit in those chapters that aren't given in Acts 9. One of them is what the preacher actually said. And the preacher came and he said, Now why tarriest thou? That's King James. We would say, Saul, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized. I'm reading Acts 22, 16. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There's several interesting things about that. I hear some pages turning, and I do hope you'll turn and read that, because you might want to make a note there, or at least read it in your own Bible. But I would like to emphasize two or three things there. One, belief alone did not save Saul of Tarsus, did it? Now, there are a whole lot of preachers who use Paul's words from Ephesians and other places, Romans, to try to teach salvation by grace alone through faith only. I know that's a contradiction on the face of it, but that's what's taught. Well, wouldn't you think that the one who wrote those books his own experience would be what he would teach others to do to be saved? Yes, that's a fair assumption. Well, Saul was not saved by faith only. He believed in Jesus on the road to Damascus. He saw him, he talked to him, he knew he was alive, he knew who he was, he believed in him. But he wasn't saved. You say, well, how do you know that preacher? Well, he didn't act saved, number one. He fasted and prayed for three days. But here's the real reason. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy... He still had his sins. A believer, but not saved. He needed to have his sins washed away. And the preacher who was inspired of God, sent by Jesus, told him that would happen when he was baptized. Which, of course, matches everything else the New Testament teaches about Great Commission baptism. Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's the same point. John 3, 3 and 5. Except you are born of water and the Spirit, can't be born again. 1 Peter 3, 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of flesh, but the answer of good conscience toward God. And there are other verses, but that's enough. So, Anna, so Ananias teaches Paul. Paul immediately responds and is baptized, and then he begins to preach the gospel that he had once destroyed. Now, I said all that just to use him as an illustration. The greatest conversion in the history of Christianity, without doubt, is Saul of Tarsus. But it's also typical of salvation of sinners, any sinner. It may be that, you know, you wouldn't want to learn, learn the Bible, go through the series of lessons, and come in at the beginning of the week with sins, unforgiven. And then we have the last day of men and we go eat ice cream and we go home and you, you still got your sins. 
Well, we just totally missed the point. The point is learn about Jesus. Learn about the purpose of the Bible. It is to teach us what to do to be saved for us, to go to heaven and live with Jesus forever. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2, and we will look at two more ideas. Do not miss the power of the Bible in reading it. I, I read that um, Nikita Khrushchev. You might not be old enough to remember that name, but some of us are. Grew up um, going, there was a little church in his community, and that, I guess he called himself a priest. And he would bribe the children. If they would memorize a verse, he'd give them a piece of candy or memorize a chapter. And so little Nikita loved candy. <laughs> so he memorized, if memory serves right, the entire New Testament over a period of time. Just for the candy. But he grew up and became one of the world's most feared and cruel men. You see, there's more to it than knowing the Bible. The devil knows Scripture. We have to harness its power in our own lives. We can know it and not let, not let it change us. I was reading today from Psalm 119. Um, you, you probably know that chapter, longest chapter in the Bible. Verse 9 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? In other words, this world has got a lot of temptation. There's a lot of, there's a lot of dirty things in the world. And how can our young people growing up, and I've been impressed. You know, I know the college group over here and the young people here and others. They've been here every night. And they've been listening. Or at least they look like they've been listening. <laughs> I have no doubt that they're listening. They're soaking it up. You know, you go some places and the young people sitting on the back row. Uh, you know, I tell people, I don't care where you sit as long as you're here. You know, sit in the back if that's where you're most comfortable. But I really like the young people sitting down front because there's less distraction. How, how does a young person cleanse his way? By giving heed there to thy word. This is the book that keeps the young person clean. It guides his path. It keeps him from making mistakes. I've been preaching long enough and there's other preachers in here that say the same thing. I've seen what sin does to young people. I've, I've visited the jails. I've been in the hospitals. I've done the funerals. This book will guide you to heaven. Ignore it at your peril. You know, and the, deci the decisions that young people make at home are guided somewhat by their parents. But then when they get to the age when they're away from home, we got two away from home and two at home, so I'm sort of in the middle of that. Mom's not there to get you up on Sunday morning, or dad. We're, we're Jacksonville's a college congregation. And Jacksonville State University is really all around the building, but the academic buildings are straight across from us. So we're the closest church of any kind to the campus. So we always, and that's a great work, and working with college students, but sometimes you meet the parents and the students when they come to move them in, you know, everybody's happy and come to services. And, all. and then you see the parents and the student again on 
Parents' Day, about two months later. And the, the college students want you to pretend that you know who they are, you know? They had, they had mom or somebody got them up to go to services when they were at home, but they did not even have enough faith to get up the second Sunday and they're away from home. And we got young people in college over here that have driven over an hour more than one time this week to attend this gospel meeting. What does that tell you about them? It tells you something good. Their parents did something good, but they took it. You see? In the same chapter, it says, and this doesn't just apply to young people, it's all of us. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The heart is up here, not down here. I hid it here. In other words, I memorized, I thought about it, I learned it, and then I used it. That's the power of the Bible. I mentioned Hebrews 2. I'm about to ask a Bible question that John Baker can't answer. And I'm never asking this question, but I know he can't answer it. I'm going to ask uh, this Bible question Jordan Moore doesn't know the answer to. I know he doesn't. I'm never asking. David, where's David? Anyway, David couldn't answer this question. Your elders, although I'm sure they're good Bible students, cannot answer this question. This Bible question. You say, what question is it? Well, read it with me in your Bible in Hebrews 2, verse 3. Whoa. Hebrews 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? That's the question. Can John or Jordan or David or... No, they can't answer it. You know why they can't answer it? It does not have an answer. It's a rhetorical question. You cannot escape if you neglect your salvation. See, that's the power of the Bible. It's good to be baptized when you're young if you stay with it. But if you fall away in college or when you get married or when some big problem happens in your life in middle age, then all the good that you've done won't be counted for you in Judgment Day. Hebrew, uh, Ezekiel 18 Really the whole chapter, but especially 20 to 24. I like this section. I'm teaching Hebrews right now. What a great book. Wow. Hebrews, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed, the first verse says. That's grammatically unnecessary to use all those words. I teach a writing class, as uh, Brother Larry said. And one of the points we're going to make Friday is concision. And I appreciated the prayer mentioned that word. Concision. You know, don't use two words if one's enough. So why did the Holy Spirit use three words here? More earnest heed. It would have communicated the same thing if He had said we ought to give heed to. Well, there's a reason why we use adjectives and, ad and adverbs. It's for emphasis. And the Holy Spirit, if He's writing through Paul, whomever, said heed's not enough. We need, a, we need a modifier. Earnest heed. Now it's a lot stronger. We, we got to give earnest heed. The Holy Spirit said, no, that's not enough either. We need another word. More earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we should let them slip. Now I don't want you to answer, give any indication to your personal answer to this question, but I do want you to answer it. Is that phrase true of you right now? 
You look back over the last seven days, in preaching sometimes I, I like a 14-day span. The last seven days, the next seven days. So look back a week. Before Sunday, would it have been true of me that I'm giving heed to my salvation? I'm giving earnest heed to it. I'm giving more earnest heed to my salvation. I don't know the answer to that. In your case, I have to answer for myself. Now, if the answer to that question is not what I wish it were, and being honest, well, let's look at the next seven days. What needs to change tonight to make the next seven days where I could answer it truth, truthfully, I have given more earnest heed to my salvation. I don't know how, to, how you can answer that, but, but you've got, you're an intelligent person. You know how to change the changes that need to be made in order for that to be true. This book, this book will, will help you do it. That's the power of the book. And then the last one, let's go to Revelation 21. Let's talk about the place. We've talked about the person. Don't read the Bible and miss Jesus. We've, we've talked about the purpose. Don't read the Bible and miss salvation. That's, that's what it's about, a roadmap to heaven. Don't miss the Bible and miss its power to guide me, change me, mold me, help me. And then last, don't read the Bible and miss its place. Its place is heaven. We, we touched on heaven last night, but our time was gone and we just were only able to mention it. Uh, I thought about doing the whole lesson tonight on heaven, but don't fear, I'm not going to preach the whole lesson at this point, but I am going to talk just a little bit about heaven. You know, I read about Marshall Keeble. I mentioned Brother Keeble earlier and somebody mentioned something about him afterward. Um, Brother Keeble's first wife died and he married a, a second time, a, a much younger sister. And at certain times, at least, in, in their marriage, as he got older, they slept in different rooms. One night she heard something and she thought that he might have called out to her. So she got out of bed and she walked down. His door was closed. And she just stood at the door and listened because she didn't want to, want to wake him if she were wrong. And so she listened. And she heard him laughing. She said, Marshall, are you okay in there? And he said, oh yes, I was just thinking about heaven. When is the last time I even smiled thinking about heaven? Much less laughed out loud. You know, our lives are often a mile wide. Be here at this time, do this, got to do this, got to get all these things done on my to-do list today. And I hit the bed worn out. Alarm clock in the morning, I'm back on the route. You know, does that sound familiar? Mile wide, but only an inch deep. Because to-do lists are urgent things, not necessarily important things. When does the important thing move from lower tier to the top of the list? Such as, read my Bible. 
such as memorize my scripture, such as have family devotional, such as attend all the services of the gospel meeting, such as... Those are the deeper things in life. If we're not careful, we'll go through life in like a speedboat, not like a glass-bottom boat. A glass-bottom boat is a totally different perspective of the same water. It goes slow and you, you look deep. You discover things you never knew were there in the speedboat. God wants us to take the glass-bottom boat tour of this book. It's good to read Genesis to Revelation straight through. Four chapters a day gets you through the whole book in one year. That's a good thing. But it's insufficient by itself. Slow down and camp on a chapter or a verse or a word. Revelation 21 talks about a city. The Bible is called a country, Hebrews 11. It's called a home, John 14, 1 to 3, a mansion. But in this text, it's called a city. City, and Abraham called it that too. He looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. That's what we're looking for. We want to live in that city, the golden city, the eternal city, the city that has no night, the city where God lightens the place and there. There's, there's no darkness, no night, no sin. I'll just read a little bit. I, I don't have much time. I can't really see that clock, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's getting to the end of our, our hour. Revelation 21. Let's make a couple of comments, and then we'll issue the Lord's invitation. I'll go ahead and let you be thinking about this. I sure hope there's someone in here tonight who's ready to accept the Lord's invitation. It's not the preacher's invitation. It's not the church's. It's the Lord's. And it really has nothing to do with who presents the Word. It has everything to do with the Word. But it has more to do with the personal application of the Word. And say, I believe it and I'm going to do it and there's not enough demons in hell to keep me from doing it. I'm going to be right with God before this night ends or die trying. Well, once I make that resolution, I don't care what people think. I don't care how many people see me go down front. I don't, the only thing I want is the smile of God. I want to wear His Son's name. I want him to write my name in his book. I want to pillow my head with an assurance that I belong to God. He's my God. So Revelation 21. I preach this as all preachers do. You know, since I started preaching when I was 18. I went to preacher school at 18. And I had no idea what I was doing and how not much more now, but I certainly didn't know in 18, but I preached on heaven. You know, it's a good subject. Everybody likes to hear about heaven. But over the years, and I don't know if this is true of John, but I've changed my sermon about heaven. It's still, my, my old sermon, I still preach it, but it just ends differently. Uh, I talked about streets of gold 
angels singing, a reunion. Well, those are good points. But I didn't preach the best thing about heaven. Because the best thing about heaven is not verse 4, which, is, which was always my text. It's verse 3. Let's read it. <clears throat> and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Now, focus on this next phrase. And he will dwell with them. What was so great about the Garden of Eden? Was it the fresh fruit and the good climate? Not really. The best thing was the fellowship with God. What's the best thing about heaven? Is it the street of gold and the mansion? Well, well that's good. But you know, it could have mud streets and a shack and particle board walls and his flower beds could be overgrown with weeds. But if God's there, that's where I want to be. There's some people that say, when I get to heaven, I just want to flip from, you know, one place to another and see things I've never seen. And well, I don't know if you'll have the opportunity or not, but I tell you what I want to do. I want to sit at the feet of Jesus and admire Him. I read that in, during the time of William Gladstone, there were people who would cross the Atlantic just to see His face. I don't think I would have been in that, that number. But there is a face I want to see. It's the face who died for you and me. That's heaven. I'll close this story. I love old preachers. I never got to know Gus Nichols. He died in 1975. I, I, I lived in the same part of the country. I just didn't know him. I was just a kid. You know, I, was, I was nine years old when he died. Brother Wendell Winkler preached out here. I guess it was at Brown Trail, directed the school some many years ago. And he said they had a lectureship every year and the churches came together and their building, no building was big enough to house it. So they had it at the high school gymnasium. They rented it out. So they had a lectureship, they brought in speakers and it was great. Every night the gym was packed and they, he thought, who, who are we gonna have to close out this year? It's gonna be great. We're going to do heaven as a last lesson. And he said, Gus Nichols, if we could get Brother Nichols, boy, that would be the cherry on top. So he called him, and sure enough, he could come, and he did. And he said it was packed. Every bench in that gym was full, and the singing lifted the roof, and it was so exciting. And Brother Nichols got up to preach about heaven. This is years later, Brother Winkler looks at us as students, and he says, I was so disappointed. Boy, well, that got our attention, you know? Disappointed in Brother Nichols? Wow. He said he didn't mention the streets of gold. He didn't mention the mansions. He didn't mention the, the walls of diamonds or jasper. And he said, all he talked about was God for the whole lesson. 
And then he said, I was a young preacher and I was so wrong. He said, Brother Nichols understood what makes heaven heaven. It's where my father is. And so the lesson tonight is yours. Are you ready to go home to see the Father? If there's anything between you and that destination, wouldn't you make it right tonight? God has paved the way for you. Everything is done that God could do to save every person, but the decision remains in our court. So you may come, if, if you wish, while we stand and while we sing. Amen.